This program is brought to you by Grand Valley State University. We're talking today with Mr. Jerry Boshin of Muskegon, Michigan. The interviewer is James Smither of the Grand Valley State University Veterans History Project. Now, Mr. Boshin, can you start by telling us a little bit about your background, uh, to start with where and when were you born? Born in Chicago, Illinois, and I entered and the submarine service in a very unique way. No, well, not there yet. Uh, what year were you born? 25. All right. 1925. And then what did your family do? What did your father do my for a living? My father worked in the steel mills, and my mother was just a home homebody. Okay, and how many kids were in the family? Four sisters and no brothers. All right. Uh, now, uh, did you finish high school? Uh, that's, a, that's debatable. I have a diploma. Okay. I quit high school in, my, in December of 42. Joined the Navy the, first, the very first day or two of 43. All right. Uh, now, and then how old were you when you joined the Navy? Seventeen. Okay. Did you need your parents' permission to enlist at that yes. point? Yes. But that's a story. All right. Well, why don't we start there? Well, tell us a little bit about how you wound up enlisting. Three or four of my bosom buddies on the block in South Chicago decided we we're going to go enlist in some sort of service. So I asked my mother for car fare for the electric train, went downtown, we all gathered in front of the first recruiting office, which was the Navy. Mm -hmm. I was the only one with nerve enough to go in. The others stayed outside. So I went through all the paperwork, passed fine, but they wouldn't accept me because I had a bad tooth. So I took the train back to my family dentist. He yanked the tooth out. I borrowed money from him to go back downtown and came, came there with a bloody mouth. And so that's what happened. They, they, they said, boy, you must want to. Well, they gave me the paperwork for my parents to sign. Mm -hmm. And when I went home, I signed the papers and ran out of the house. I don't know why. The dirty trick to pull on my mother, I guess. But that's how I entered the service. And then after boot, boot camp, we had our choice, of course. Well, tell me a little bit about boot camp. But where did you have boot camp? Green Bay, Camp Green Bay, Waukegan, Illinois, up north, you know. All right. Uh, and. So, and what did boot camp consist of at that point? Just basic training and, you know, I would say just the basic, basic training. And it was like 12 weeks. So we... we well, did they have you marching or just learning dis military oh, discipline or... Marching, shooting, uh, fake shooting. And uh, it, was, it was a rugged, for, for softies, you know, who never had regimentation. It was, mm -hmm. it, was, it was an easy thing for them. It was tough for us. And then we had a choice of schools to, mm -hmm. to decide on. Well, not realizing I had enough credits to get my diploma, I wanted to be a flyer. I wanted to be a Navy flyer. <clears throat> and it turns out that I, I figured I couldn't because I didn't have my diploma. So I picked submarines, which was my second choice. Why, really, my yeah, my second choice. And when it turned out that that was available, and then they sent me to various schools for torpedoes and uh, firing. All right. Now, where did they send you to train for submarines? What was the first place you went to? First place I went to was uh, Keyport, Washington. All right. And what kind of base or facility did you go to? Keyport was where they made the torpedoes. Mm -hmm. So I got a real basic 
learning of how they're made, <clears throat> how they were fired for testing. A torpedo had to make three perfect runs down this strait that they had in about eight miles straight <clears throat> before it would be sent to the fleet. And it was interesting. And I would end up going back there two or three times during my career for various reasons. Right. Now, early in the war, there were issues with uh, torpedo detonators and, and, and things like that. Uh, was that somebody else's problem and you were concerned with the propulsion system, or did <clears throat> they fix that issue by then? No, the issue was the bureaucracy <clears throat> in Washington felt that, that they were right, that you can fire these torpedoes under the enemy and it should explode underneath oh. it, but it didn't work. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, what did you need instead? Did you need a, a contact torpedo instead? Well, we always had contacts. Mm -hmm. Switch to the uh, device that's supposed to explode underneath, and uh, a group of submarine captains got together in Australia, and they says, forget the bureaucracy. It's not working. And what happened is that as you'd fire a torpedo at the enemy, they'd spot the wake coming at them, then you got depth charged, mm -hmm. which was not fun. Right. So some of the captains went back to hitting, hitting direct, and all of a sudden our record looked very good. All right. Uh, so you went to torpedo school uh, in Washington. How long were you there? Four you months. Okay. Now, while you were out there in torpedo school, did you stay on base the whole time? Could you get off base and go somewhere else? or? Well, every night you could go out to a town, a local town, and, and have what, a beer or two. What town, were they close to any, any large city, or are these just smaller? Bremerton, the Navy, Bremerton Navy Yard was seven, eight miles away. All right. So you weren't too far from Seattle then either? No, we'd have to take the, uh, oh, what do you call it? Boat, train, or bus? No, that'd be a, on, on, the, on the water. Or a ferry? A ferry boat, yes. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was interesting. And I can't think of anything odd that happened there, but uh, it was a good education on torpedoes. Okay. Now, once you finished torpedo school, then where do you go? Then they sent me down to San Diego for more tor uh, submarine school. Mm -hmm. And uh, San Diego had a tower, a 100-foot tower, that we'd go to the bottom and muscle up by, by line. And it was designed to teach you, in case we did sink to the bottom, you could get away with releasing this cork. And every 10 foot there was a, a knot. And as you come to that knot, you, you held up and counted to three and move on to the next one so to avoid the bends. Right. That was interesting. Most interesting to me was while you're down there at a hundred foot depth, there's a sailor, a Navy man, pushing your arms, you know, straightening you out, and he's just got a nose clip on. He mm -hmm. has no, no, he's holding his breath for four minutes. Five. Okay. Now, did you have oxygen of some kind? Yeah, you have... we had the mumps and lung. Okay. And, and what, what exactly was that? Well, that was, uh, well, he was an admiral at that time, but he designed it. And what happened is you'd, you'd shoot it with compressed oxygen and then dip down and, and go, and you can breathe normally. Mm -hmm. That was a very big, big thing at that time. Right. Okay. But, you, but you, you're training with a fellow who's just done this enough, he can hold his breath long enough, he doesn't even worry about that stuff. Right. Okay. Uh, now, at this stage, uh, were you actually going 
onto submarines and taking cruises on them, or were you still just staying in the base? Uh, no, almost every week you'd go out two or three days and uh, out there off the California coast. Okay. Now, what kind of submarines were you training on at that point? Sub uh, S boats. The S boat was the pre World War II sub. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't call it a World War II sub, I would call them fleet submarines. Probably twice the size of the S boats. And then once in a while we'd get onto a fleet submarine. And, and eventually I'd go to where? Fire controlled school where you, you took a beat on the enemy and watched the way they zigged and zagged. And it was it was interesting. Okay. Now, some of the people who uh, talked about getting into the submarine service mentioned that there's an awful lot of, of testing that goes on, a fair amount of weeding out of people. Did you experience yes. that? Were there people that you started with that then get pushed out of the program? How did that work? Well, they testing you for for a phobia, of course, and some guys tried to circle. They wanted to be in submarines so bad they tried to fake it. Well, when they put that pressure on you in these in these locks and you escape, if you can't pop your ears, you end up with one terrific headache. Mm -hmm. And these poor guys, in the middle of the night, they'd wake up screaming. But then they were weeded out because. Now, did you start submarine school sort of with a class, a kind of a group that you're going through together? Yeah. Okay. And about how many people do you think you were going in with? I think 15 or 20. All right. And how many of them made it to the other end of the course? Most. Okay. Most did. Now, did you have to go through a lot of tests in order to get in, in the first place? Well, definitely, because at the beginning of the war, we had few submarines, and mm -hmm. they, they, their requisites were very strict. Right. Uh, you couldn't be over six feet tall. You had to have an overbib on your teeth to grab that Momsen lung properly. Mm -hmm. But once they started building more and more submarines, they re relinquished a little on the requisite. All right. Now, while you were, how about how long were you based in San Diego? About three months. Okay. And there, too, did you have a chance to get off the base and go into town and that kind of thing? Oh, yes. Now, and what sort of place was San Diego at that time? Because you had a big naval base and a lot of war going on. Huge. Huge naval base and uh, very well manicured. Just, just, there were thousands of sailors there and everybody fit in. Everybody had a job to do and a place to be. And when they went off the base, uh, were there MMPs around or people there to kind of Always. make sure the soldiers behaved? Always. Now, once you do, you've done your sort of your, your torpedo training, your submarine training, um, was, were there other specialized courses you had? Yes, there was. They sent me to the seashore for 20 millimeter shooting. And I was in the first gun emplacement, and there were 10 or 12 emplacements. So after getting instructed, about the fact that every fifth shell was an incendiary, mm -hmm. and you could see. Right, the tracer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the drone came along with the, with the target, and I was the first one, and I hit the cable and severed it. <laughs> so it, it just fell into the ocean. 
they had to send for another drone and whatnot. I did the same thing with the second one. And there was an admiral who was overseeing this project. He called me up. He said, he said, bring that man here. You know. And he asked me where I learned to shoot like that. I said, I never shot a gun lineman in my life. Well, it was just, just a reflexes with the incendiary. Right. It was a simple thing. Of course, I wasn't trying to hit the cable. Mm -hmm. I was coming to it, to the target. But that was that was a fun thing. All right. Now, was there an extended course in gunnery, or was this just a week or so? No, or? just just a day. Just a day. Okay. Just one other thing added. Now, was the expectation on a submarine that you might rotate into different jobs and might have to take a turn with a deck gun or something like that? Well, being being in what they call a right arm rate, uh, yes, I, I had I would do the helm, do the steering, mm -hmm. work the TDC, the torpedo data computer. Uh, down below, I, when we're submerged, I'd handle the bow planes or the stern planes. So it was it was interesting in that in that light. Okay. Now. Once you finished the training there at San Diego, then what's your first assignment? We we were, we were put on a we were put on a uh, troop transport to Hawaii. All right. And when we got to Hawaii, I was assigned to a Navy base and plenty to do there. There I was doing other jobs relative to the submarines. One of them was I was because I could tie it not and that they could trust, I was put in charge of 70 men putting submarines into dry dock, sandblasting them down to bare metal practically, then painting them with a fast drying new type of plastic paint. And I had eight hours in which to do this. So that was interesting. I did something like 13 or 14 before they realized I wanted to go to sea. Mm -hmm. Now, where were you based in Hawaii? Where was this? Pearl Naples? Harbor. Okay, you were at Pearl Harbor. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, what did Pearl Harbor look like at the time you were there? Well, there was very little semblance of the, of the December 7th. Mm -hmm. It was pretty well cleaned up when I got there. The, um, the Japanese made a big mistake in not hitting the sub-base. Mm -hmm. Obviously, because the subs took care of a great percentage of the Japanese shipping, but it was it was interesting because I had a myriad of jobs. I had some I didn't like, like crawling into the tubes and greasing them, degreasing them. Uh, there was one job where. There were the rollers had a certain tolerance, and you had to take the roller apart and put in the right number of shims, so that when the torpedo came in, it would be smooth. You know, things like that. So basically, what you were doing is working on refitting submarines in a variety of capacities, and so not just the getting them tied up to be painted part. Well, what happened when the submarine would come in from sea? They'd write up a hit list, mm -hmm. trouble list. Right. And they'd hand that to the chief of the boat. He'd pass out the jobs. So that's what, then they had to be repaired. And while the crew was out R&R, &R, they had to be repaired in time for the next, the next uh, movement, you know. 
All right. And about how long were you stationed then in Pearl Harbor? Oh, on and off for three years. Okay. Would you, now did, during the course of those three years, did you get occasions to actually go out to sea? Uh, Only for training purposes. Mm -hmm. And then when the silver sides came along, I did the, the refit of the silver sides in the dry dock and finally got told that I was going out on the silver sides. So I stayed on the silver sides from 1945, I think it was, March or April. Mm -hmm. And I stayed with it even to putting it in, into mothballs in Philadelphia. Right. Now, so you basically, you're making its last war patrol then? Was yes. That, uh, okay. But now, then, then I went to the Torsk, mm -hmm. but the war was over. Okay. Well, we'll cover that, that, that part too, because uh, we want to recover your whole service career. But now, the Silver Sides, um, how long had the Silver Sides been out by that time? Or how many patrols had it made already? It had made 13. This was the 14th patrol that it was on. Okay. And our job was air sea rescue. Mm -hmm. So while, while our B 29s were uh, shattering Tokyo, we were there to catch our, our pilots mm -hmm. who were shot down, who didn't have any control over their flight. Right. And we, we picked up two, two of the pilots, okay. two days apart. Now, how was the system set up? Was there a relay of submarines along the flight path? or? Yes, there were, there were I don't know how many. I think there were two or three. Mm -hmm. And then they had a PVY circling around and also a B-29 circling around to protect us. Did you ever see any Japanese aircraft or were there? Yeah, two, twice Japanese aircraft came in on us, surprisingly. We didn't see them, we heard them. Mm -hmm. uh, radar caught them coming in when they got to within five miles we dove. At what range would the radar catch them? Ten miles, twelve miles. Okay. Uh, and was that enough of a warning to dive before they could come after you? Right. Well, we also had the PBY. And mm -hmm. I don't know what happened up, the, up above after we dove, you know. Yeah. I'm not sure how much air-to-air uh, -air combat at PBY would engage in necessarily. No, they're, they're mostly for viewing because right. supposedly, I've never seen it, but the supposedly uh, the sea wasn't that deep at that point, and mm -hmm. a ship, uh, an airship, can see the silhouette down below in the water, which was fortunate. All right. Uh, now, do you have a, a sense of sort of how many flyers the submarines rescued? Because you got a couple. We got a couple. I don't know how many others did. I uh, know some did. Now, by, by this time, were the Japanese pretty well out of, of merchant ships or anything else oh, yes. to have as a target? Yeah. We, we were told to go after them if they come up, but they hugged close to the shore. They, they stayed right, right, right in their hometown. They didn't want to leave. Now, on your they did. Uh, there is one thing. They, they, they cast depth charges, not depth charges, mines. Mm -hmm. They cast them loose hoping to possibly catch one of our ships. I, I spotted, I believe I spotted nine uh, from my perch up above. Mm -hmm. Now, do you know if uh, any of those mines ever actually hit anybody? 
Those mines, we we knocked them out. Mm -hmm. But the, when I would spot them, we would right. get to them, and the captain would get out his 50, 20, 50 caliber and mm -hmm. detonate it. Right. But uh, did you hear at all of mines hitting any other ships? No. Okay. Uh, now, did you see anything of the Japanese Navy at all by this time? No. Okay. Now, were there men uh, from the crew who were veterans of earlier uh, voyages? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Quite a few. And did they say much about actually being depth charged and some of that kind of stuff? Yeah, they, they prepared us for for what to expect, you know. Because when we, we fired a couple of torpedoes and they were duds, they, they, mm -hmm. they either went under or what have you. Uh, and we, they, were, they were not depth charging us, so we did go out training depth charges with, out of Pearl Harbor. In mm -hmm. fact, the S-28 that I was scheduled to be a trainer on, I was playing a championship baseball game, so they let me out for that day, and the guy that replaced me went down 20 miles out of Pearl Harbor. It sunk. Mm -hmm. No idea why, no sign of it. It just disappeared. Disappeared, yeah. But it was only out there on a training mission. Mm -hmm. They were firing torpedoes underneath destroyers, a destroyer, and one time it just dove and never came up. July 4th, 1944. All right. Now, this is probably a, a side issue, but how did you wind up on a championship baseball team? Well, <laughs> at that time I was assigned to the sub-base, the sub-base, uh, what do they call it? Sub-base 128, I think it was, yeah. So I had, if I worked nights, I could play baseball all day long. And that was my first love. Mm -hmm. Baseball was my love. That's another story. All right. Uh, now, at this stage when you're out there on the last last cruise with, with the Silver Stars, at the point you're going out, did you have an expectation at that point that the war was nearly over? That you were winning, and it was just a matter of time now. When we would when we would surface and see this steady stream of B-29s, seven or seven in a, in a flotilla, and then every five minutes there'd be another seven, mm -hmm. and then on the other side going back empty. Oh yeah, we we knew it was a matter of time. Okay. We went to Guam, and just after we got on to Guam. The war was over. All right. And what was the response at that point when that news got out? Well, how can you, how can you put a word to it? It was, it was fantastic, yeah. Okay. Now, what kind of facilities did they have at Guam at that time? Oh, we had fantastic facilities. R and R. We had a camp. They called it Camp Dealey. It must have been some Admiral Dealey. And uh, we had Quonset huts, and I was in the last Quonset hut before they had a uh, fence. And we were told that there are Japs on, on that side that they didn't know the war was over. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see any of them, but some of my group did. They said they saw some of these Japs. Yeah. And there was a little island just off Guam. 
or was it off-site bands? Tinny Ann it was called. They used it for target practice, dropping bombs. Mm -hmm. And there were Japs on there yet. Well, Tinian had been occupied. I mean, the Americans had landed there, uh, and they used that as a base too. I, I don't know. I but they're all they're all in the Marianas. So, but but along at, at one of those, then yeah. you had that. Yeah. Well, you get stories about. Did you ever hear stories about sort of Japs are sort of showing up in the chow lines to eat? Cause probably some, happened. Because some of the soldiers talk about that. that they they yeah, saw probably that. Probably happened. Uh, now, once once the war came to an end, then what kind of assignment did you have? Well, we were, first of all, they cut us off on petrol, on, on diesel oil, mm -hmm. so that everybody could get home. And we were cut down to a little less than half speed. Took us uh, forever to get to the Panama Canal. And we were 12 hours in the Gatun Lake for our turn to go through the uh, mm -hmm. canal. Then we stopped for just a short visit at Cuba. And then we went to Staten Island, New York. Eventually, well, on the way there, we unloaded a torpedo to Portsmouth. Mm -hmm. And then we got into Staten Island. Stayed there for a while before we went to Groton, Connecticut. And that was where they built a lot of the submarines, right? Yeah. Yeah. And is that where you decommissioned it, or, or mothballed it, or? We mothballed it in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But that's uh, that's a subbase in New London. There's it comes to my baseball story. They asked me if if I played baseball mm -hmm. first of all. Oh. Didn't have to ask me twice. So the fields were very muddy. It was early early spring. Mm -hmm. So we were practicing in a gymnasium with the wooden floors. And I was introduced to a guy. They told me he was going to be the next Yankee catcher. And he was very clumsy. Not 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 very good at all. Turned out to be that was Yogi Berra. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the weather clean, cleared a little bit, we got outside. I, I put myself in right field, and he kept hitting him over my head by miles. <laughs> so I thought, well, I guess he's going to be the next Yankee catcher. And the Yankee management came to, to sign him up to a contract and take him to spring training that year. Mm -hmm. While I, while they were there, they saw me and they had gave me a contract. But I hadn't been home in almost four years, so I waited to start my career the next year. And strange that it happened at this time, right now. But I have been trying to get to talk to Yogi Berra because of his his really starting me off in in professional baseball, mm -hmm. and I was unsuccessful. The last week I talked to him on the phone. How about that? Just last week, December, what, 6th, something like that. He has a learning center that he sponsored in, in New Jersey. He's got a museum. They lo he loaned his name to him, you know, that's mm -hmm. all. But what a guy. And I now, 
then I sent him some clippings from the, from the New London base where his name and my name are mentioned, you know. So he sounds like, well, if I, my son is running a company in Englewood, New Jersey, about 20 minutes from where he lives. So the chance of meeting him finally is coming to fruition. So then after, unfortunately, after a short stay at New London, we went to Philadelphia, where I put it in mothballs. Mm -hmm. Then they put me on the on this Torsk. Torsk was very short-lived because it was time for me to be discharged. Mm -hmm. And I had a choice of going back to Green Bay, where Camp Green Bay at Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. Or I could take Bethesda, Maryland, which was near the Yankee office, which is what I wanted. So that's what I did. I, I got discharged out there and took care of my paperwork. And so I set up for the next year to play professional baseball. And did that happen? Yes. I played the full year and spring training the following year, but in the meantime I was married and, mm -hmm. and had a baby on the way and I, I had to give it up. They wouldn't pay enough money. Now they're throwing money around like it's confetti. That's right. Now, uh, what kind of work did you then go into? Trucking. I went into the trucking business and uh, worked for various truck lines, and then eventually started my own business. And it was very good. I had six children, put them all through college. It was a good, it was a good, good business for me. Okay. I'd like to go back a little bit and have you tell me something about what life is like on a submarine when you're out on patrol. Uh, what's the daily routine? How does that work? Well, there, there is no daily routine because you don't know what day it is. Okay. You don't know what time it is. Well, you do know what time because if you're asleep and it's time for your duty, they come and put infrared goggles on you so you adapt to the nightlife, you know, mm -hmm. if you're surfaced to the darkness. But otherwise, it's eating. And I, I qualified to wear the dolphins. I qualified in my one chance, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a drawing of all of every hydraulic line, electrical line, and all that. And other than that, it was coffee and, and bread. 24 hours a day. We had a baker that baked 28, not 20, 88 loaves of bread. One, one for each man. Now, what other kind of food could they bring along with them? Did, oh, they have, we, did they have a refrigerator or a freezer or something like that? They had a freezer. They had a freezer. In fact, when we picked up these pilots, the cook had prepared a steak dinner, and these pilots were amazed. Because mm -hmm. we were already out almost 30 days. Right. They couldn't, couldn't believe it. Now, what, what was the cycle? Were you sort of four hours on, four hours off, or...? Four hours on, eight hours off. Eight hours off. And during eight hours off, what did you do with the time? Watched movies, played cards, read. Was, how would you watch movies on a submarine? They're, they're not very big. We had movies. Okay. And how would they do that? Was there some space large enough that you Well, could... the mess hall. We, it was all done in the mess hall. Okay, and about how large do you think the mess hall was in terms of dimensions? 12 by 12. It could feed 24, could feed 24 people at one time. Mm -hmm. Crowded, but yep. it, it happened. 
Uh, now, were there kind of standard rules or customs or things that uh, you were just expected to do, rules to follow, that would make it easier for that many men to function effectively in a small space without getting mad at each other? No, it was no problem. Never, never had a problem that I could see. Mm -hmm. We, uh, we got along good. It was a little touchy after two weeks. You know, of course, first of all, you couldn't take a shower until mm -hmm. the potatoes were eaten. The showers were full of fresh potatoes. Well, when you finished the potatoes, then you got the freeze-dried stuff. They had a reason for their madness. What kind of relationship was there between the officers uh, and, and the sailors and the crew? Very good. In ours, it was very good, yeah. Did you have a sense of what kind of background the officers had? Were these people well, kind of one of them in particular uh, came to me and asked me to help him learn about torpedoes. Strangely enough, mm -hmm. he was a torpedo officer. But apparently he didn't get enough of it in schooling. So he and I would sit and talk and bone, bone up on it, you know. Were the officers mostly people just kind of pulled out of civilian life like the rest of you? or were there I think so, yeah. yeah. You don't know that any of them were in the Navy before the war or anything like oh, that? Oh, a couple of them were. In fact, our captain was for three generations. Mm -hmm. He had a grandfather that was an admiral. So, in fact, my wife and I visited the second, the second captain of the Silver Sides, the second during the war. Burlingame was his name. We, we visited him in San Diego about five years ago, and he was a sea, he had a sail, he sailboat, and he was a sailor. Mm -hmm. He sailed to his last day. He loved it. Now, had you ever put any time in, spent any time on boats or sailing before you joined the Navy, or was that? No, not at all, not at all. Now, what there, there is, there is something I want to interject. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the fact that I had left school right. halfway through my senior year. Well, as it turned out, I discussed this many times with my captain about my desire to be a Navy pilot. Mm -hmm. And unknown to me, he wrote to my school and he obtained my diploma. And he got two copies, one for my mother and one for me. Because I had taken extra credits, I had forgotten completely mm -hmm. that I took extra credits. I could have walked out with a diploma when I, when I left the, the house, you know. So that was, that was interesting. To look back on it now, how do you think your, your time in the Navy wound up affecting you? Oh, I think it did a lot of good. I think I learned a lot about obedience following orders. I had no ill experience mm -hmm. at all. So I, I'm, I'm very content. Do you think you learned something about how to get along with people or deal with people who are different from you at the same time? At first, the first six months, I was, I was a bear. I was, I don't know why, but I was, I was, I was mean to, to, to talk to, for whatever reason. 
I had, I had an attitude. In fact, I was going to the University of Illinois at Navy Pier, and my instructor, who also was of Polish descent, he gave me a very bad marking on, on what I did in architectural engineering. Mm -hmm. I did a beautiful rendition. And he, he didn't give me any credit at all. And I one-punched him. I knocked him out. And then what happened? I turned around, I walked, I went home. And he didn't do anything else about it? Nope. And he kept calling the house. Or not he, the dean kept calling my house. My mother kept saying, and they're calling. I said, I don't care. But very foolish on my part because under the GI Bill, mm -hmm. I could have gone to any school I wanted to. Right. But I didn't. I was too angry at, at the world. So, that was it. Now, so did your attitude toward the world kind of change after that, or did yeah, you decide, I, okay? After about six months, I, it softened up. Mm -hmm. So by the time you're actually on a submarine, packed in with, with, with a bunch of guys, then you learned that lesson. Yeah. All right. Are there other incidents or things from your time in the service that kind of stick out in your mind a little bit that you haven't mentioned here yet? Things that tend to come back to you for one reason or another? Probably as soon as I step out that door. Well, that always happens. There's always, you turn off the camera and then they come up with a thing. Yeah. Uh, other particular people... I just wrote a book. Okay. An autobiography. In fact, I just talked to the publisher today. Uh, I have chosen my front page. Mm -hmm. The name of the book is Touching All Bases. So I, I talked to the, I forget the title of man's got, but I picked out the image I want for mm -hmm. the front page, and it's going to be ready to go. But I, I probably won't get it in my hands, <clears throat> published probably for a month yet. But I'm anxious. All right. Uh, now, I, I have one last question, and, and as a Chicago boy, it's important. Cubs or White Sox? Don't, don't mention Cubs. South Side, yeah, White Sox. <laughs> or don't mention Cubs because you're from the South Side or because they, no. they died this year? No, when I, when I quit baseball, mm -hmm. I was in my, my second year at spring training. And she's got the paperwork, but I could show you. You know much about baseball? Yes, sir. In spring training, I would, my total batting average was five, 341. Okay, that's pretty good. In spring training, for 31 games, it was 585. Wow. They couldn't get me out. So, I, I went to the Cubs on a, on a Friday to see if I could, because I had quit, I got my outright release, that's a long story. But I did get my outright release from the Yanks, which nobody else ever had, had done. Because <laughs> it was the fault of the manager. Well, that's another story. And then, as it turned out, I went to the Cubs' office, and they, they were talking sensibly until I asked for more money to take my wife with me down to Louisville, Kentucky. Then he said, well, we haven't had any good luck with Chicago-born ballplayers. And Phil Cavaretto was just finishing his 19th year with them. So I thought, oh, okay. 
So then I went to the White Sox. And the White Sox treated me better. But I could hear John Rigney, who married a Comiskey daughter, mm -hmm. I could still hear him saying, we don't give bonuses. <clears throat> and the next, the next Sunday, headlines says, White Sox pay 75 Gs for Balmer. Never played a game for him. Mm -hmm. Why are you a Sox fan? No, I, my mother's family are Northsiders, so I, I grew up with the Cubs. I was, I was kidding anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I sure, I was, you know, these stories keep popping up. But I hit a home run at the Cubs Park when I was 15. Now, after that, did Thanks you get involved with, with coaching or anything like that no. later on? All right. No, because my trucking business took up mm -hmm. all my time. <clears throat> I worked many hours. Mm -hmm. First 10 years, my partner and I worked about 18 hours a day. Wow. Took a lot, but we were successful. Mm -hmm. seems to, you seem to have come out very well, and on the whole, doing real well, even if you can't jump over chairs. Actually. Actually, my divorce didn't, didn't fare too well. The judge gave her everything, a million dollars. All right. Uh, but you seem to have bounced back from that as well, or? Well, no choice. Yeah, that's right. No choice. Okay, and then um, how long have you been involved with submarine veterans? 1982, I had a meeting with my personnel, my sales personnel, my business. And one of them was a uh, former Green Beret. He had shrapnel in his legs. And he asked me if I was going to the sub-convention. I said, what convention? I, I didn't, knew, didn't know it existed. So he told me about it. I went, I went down there, and about a year later, I was president of the sub, of the Maritime Museum in Chicago, and frankly, I'm pretty much one who helped bring it here from Chicago mm -hmm. after we were kicked out. Yeah, I remember that too. All right, well, uh, bringing it up here, I think it's been a fine thing for Muskegon. The museum seems to be moving along pretty well, and it's given us an opportunity to get a very good string of interviews, including yours. So thanks for taking the time to come in and talk to us today. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Grand Valley State University. Visit us at gbsu.edu.